0: The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, in this life on earth, we have come to value ourselves very highly, and we take multiple steps to try to preserve our lives. We, we have things like life belts and life rafts and lifeboats and lifelines and life preservers we even have life insurance unfortunately that only pays off when you die but we have all these things to preserve our lives and so when verse 25 says whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life it's sometimes very hard to comprehend what on earth is jesus saying Why should we listen to such advice that, on the surface, just sounds foolish? Well, two main reasons, obviously. First, the one who said these words did exactly what he said. He gave up his life in such a way that you could hardly call it foolish. And second, by giving up his life, he gained it back and also gained followers for eternal life. So these verses can't be taken lightly or simply skipped over. And so we want to look at some, some key principles here. But before we do this, I want to take you to another apostle. I want to take you to the book of Philippians. And I want to set the stage by looking at the apostle Paul and how he viewed this life. Because so often you and I come to places where we're forced to make a decision. Either I am going to trust God and go his way, or I'm going to hang on to it and try to get what I think I want. So listen to how the Apostle Paul viewed life in this world in Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, and, and let me stop there for a second, because you recall who the Apostle Paul was. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was Trained in the house of Gamaliel. He was the most brilliant of all the Pharisees. He was wealthy. He had prestige. He made decisions. He headed up programs. This guy was at the pinnacle of social success. And he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered. The loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now in the literal translation for rubbish, it's called the dung heap. Literally, all the gain he had in life in his mind was worth nothing more than to go on the dung heap for the excellency of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law... But that which comes through the faith of Christ. Now, modern translations have missed it here because they say faith in Christ implying that I have to exert faith in Christ. Literal translation, faith of Christ. I'm relying on his faith through me, not my ability to have enough faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Boy, you don't hear that in the world today do you? Becoming like him in his death that by the means if possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15:31, Paul literally said, I die daily. So for the life of Paul, it was a daily occurrence that he had to focus That he had to zero in on Christ. That he had to remind himself who he was here for. That it was not about him, it was about Christ. And in quoting John himself, John the the Baptist, that he must decrease and Christ must increase. And so Paul embodied this whole thing. Verse 12, now that I have already obtained this, not that I have already attained this or or I'm ready perfect, I press on to make my own because... Christ Jesus made me his own. What a motivation. I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead... I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call in God in Christ Jesus. Listen, I don't know what you came in with this morning. I don't know the weights, the baggage, or what you've brought in this morning, but I can tell you, you can leave very lightweight. You can leave it at the altar and trust Christ because what is past is past. We can't change the past. But boy, we sure carry it with us. And it's a stumbling block every day. Paul said, look, what was past, I count as past, now I press on. Now I push forward for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Pressing on, verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal it so that you will know. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now get this next verse. Brothers, join in imitating me. Now, how many of you could, in great conscience, look to the person next to you and say, you want to succeed in life? Just follow me. Whatever you see in me, do. Yet this is what Paul could do. And the only reason Paul could do it was because it was Christ reigning in him. And what Paul was saying is, hey, follow me, but in reality, you're following Christ because Christ owns me. And where I go, Christ is leading me. And you can follow that too. So brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have seen in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That is the essence of the prosperity gospel because it's all about me. I'm sure you heard in the news this week of a popular pastor well-known around the world whose wife made that statement and many of you may have seen it. In fact, I think I've seen it on some of your Facebooks where she said, it's not about God, it's about me. She literally said, oh, you could say it's about God, but God's happy when we're happy. So it's about us. And the only thing I could think of was, there's Eve in the garden. And that's all it is. That's Eve in the garden. The literalness of saying, it's my life, it's about me, and all that makes God happy. Does that sound like what Paul is saying here? It's the antithesis of what he's saying. Verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Listen, dying to self doesn't help you live better. Dying to self enables Christ to live through you. And therein is the true success. So let's go back to John and let's take a look first of all at life principles here. To begin with, Jesus stated that a great principle by using nature. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, I'm no gardener. I'm a weeder. I grow lots of weeds. It's about all I grow. But if you've ever taken a seed and you just lay it on the counter and leave it there, that's all it does. It just lays there. But when you take it and put it into the ground so that it begins to decay and rot and open up, the life comes out. And that's where the principle Jesus is talking about because it's only through death that life appears. It's only through the death resurrection of Jesus Christ that life can be in us. And it's only by you and I dying to self that he can create within us that life that bears fruit. And this principle is found throughout Scripture, and this is the principle of death and denial. The truth that life comes only by death. So here Jesus illustrates the principle by referring to this grain of wheat, which remains unfruitful as long as it's kept by itself, but when it goes into the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. So the principle becomes particularly true in spiritual things. Because it's only when we say no to ourselves that we're capable of saying yes to Christ. This is what Paul meant when he said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of, there it is again, not in, but of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, carry this over to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So it is through the cross of Christ that that Paul is saying, I die to the world. All the plans, all the joys, all the things that this world can offer mean nothing to me. I've died to it. And it's dead to me. All I want to seek is the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ. Now you might have this mental picture as you look at this that we're just supposed to be a bunch of monks walking around and praying and, you know, staying away from me. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a life of fruit, a life that's out in the front lines, a life that's living because of the spirit that's living and pressing through us. In saying this, Paul means that his his identification with Christ in death made it possible for him to live the Christian life. And this is the principle then. It's death and denial. And it's only by death that life comes. And Jesus demonstrated this by his very own death, burial, and resurrection. When we accept Christ as our personal Savior, we are made alive. We are raised from spiritual death. Because in that very state, we have no ability to do anything for God. When he breathes into us spiritual life, his spirit can now lead us and guide us. So now he makes an application, the application of the truth here. And sometimes the application of a principle can be somewhat abstract. And so Jesus knew that. So his next words make the application very clear. He said in verse 25, Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, the most interesting feature about this verse is that it contains a contrast in terms that's not seen in the English translation. Let me get a little technical, if you will. Verse 25. Whoever loves his life, whoever loves his life, and you'll see it's in red up there, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There's no way of telling this in the English, but the words used for life and life are two different words. The very first word, when he says, uh, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever uh, hates his life, that word is, is a word in the Greek called suchi which refers to the life of the mind we are we call it the ego it means the human personality that thinks that plans that sets its future that decides what it wants to do that sets its goals that he says dies that's what he's referring to here in other words the independent will of man must die So that the follower of Christ may actively submit to Jesus Christ. The second word, the last life there, is the word Zoe, which joined to its adjective eternal, means the divine life. So every Christian who has accepted Christ as Savior has this divine life, but he has it to the fullest only when his entire personality with its likes and desires are surrendered to Christ. So we could say that the Christian will experience fullness of God's blessing only when he is consciously and deliberately walking God's way. And, and this is why it seems so hard. We don't understand this death stuff, so we just do the best we can. And that's where we get caught. Our lives are now what I can do, how good I am, and and you may achieve a lot of things in your flesh. We see it in the whole world today. That's not the point. The point is, is that Jesus Christ wants to do such things in your life, but only when you've surrendered your life to him. Unfortunately, we seem to have accepted the idea that because God is gracious and loving, we can enjoy the fullness of his blessings without really committing to him. If you have convinced yourself of this, you're ignoring God's laws. God satisfied the law for us with his death, burial, and resurrection, but the principles never went away. And this is why the world looks at Christians and just doesn't see any different. This is why you hear Christians taking taking it on the chin repeatedly in the press and in the news and everything else, because our lives are lived no different than the world around us. What are they seeing that's so different? What is it about you and I, when we walk out these doors and go on with our life, that someone would come up and say, it's different about you. I, I see something, the way you handle things. I, I see how when some troubles come, you, you just have this peace, you just have this surreal. What's going on? Because this, if that's what draws men. Everybody on the face of this earth wants love. They just don't know how to go about getting it. But when they see love lived out before them, you're like a magnet. You're like a light to a moth. People come because they want what you have. The problem today is so many Christians have not surrendered their will to him and they don't offer anything that people want. And this is what he's talking about here. We blow off these principles as if they don't apply to us and we, we got our salvation, so I'm good. But are you really? Are you really safe? The saved, sanctified life is a transformed life. So we have to ask ourselves in all honesty, am I transformed? Is my life different? The reason why people don't live to the highest standards is that they have not been crucified with Christ. I mean, this sounds complicated at times, but that's the reality. When Jesus died on that cross, he died to pay for your sins. And when you accept him, you're accepting his death. That's why when we baptize people, we put them under the the water and bring them up because it symbolizes our death with Christ. When he was crucified, I was crucified. When I accept his shed blood for payment, I realize that like Christ, I went in the ground, a dead person, And I was raised a new life. And so every one of us needs to live this crucified life in order for God to work through us. Now, George Mueller was the founder of tremendous orphanages in England. Many of you may have read his uh, biographies and you know about him. It seemed like everything this man prayed for came to pass. He was known as an amazing prayer warrior. And um, in fact, His idea of prayer, he never shared a prayer request. It's amazing. He didn't put out prayer letters with his orphanages. He didn't put out requests. Because in George's mind, putting it out there and someone reading it and then meeting the need, while certainly could come from God, but he wanted God to get all the credit. And so he never put out a prayer request. And one day he was asked very deliberately, George, what is the secret of your answered prayer? what is the secret of the success you've experienced with these orphanages? And listen to what George said, and I quote, there was a day when I died. Died to George Mueller. His opinions, his preferences, his taste, his will died to the world, its approval, its censure, died to the approval or blame of my brethren or friends, and since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. This new life of his was not only a joy, but it was a constant source of blessing to everyone he came in contact and to all those orphans who lived in his orphanages. His life, this life of death, is a total joy. You see, the problem with the prosperity gospel is not that it promises too much but that it aims for so little. What God promises us in Christ is far above anything that can be measured on earthly wealth. And so, when we come to this prosperity gospel, the problem is is that we literally focus everything on here on earth and not on God's eternal glory. Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ, our Savior, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Let let me make this very personal. And let me take you to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Wait, well, hold on. (laughs) I'm supposed to count it joy when I get hit over the head with a trial. Yeah. You remember what we say all the time, and I'll probably always repeat this so, so long as I ever preach. We get into trials for one of three ways. Either we put ourselves there by a dumb decision or God puts us there or he allows Satan to put us there. But all three come through the permissive will of God because God is always working. God never stops working on you. And so he tells us, James tells us clearly, look, count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness now that's a word for resoluteness it's an unmovable spirit how can you get an unmovable spirit in the midst of trials because when you trust Jesus he gets you through always and that produces confidence and strength and that's why Paul could endure shipwrecks and serpent bites and whippings and being cast out in the seas shipwrecked three times all these things he counted joy he counted it joy and you recall the story when, he, when they were put in jail and they were beaten almost to death. And they were told when they walked out, don't preach again. And they walked out going, whoopee, let's go preach. Because they were strong in their faith in what God had been doing. He, so he says, verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect That you may get this be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. There's your prosperity gospel, folks. When you can know that you can be complete and perfect and lack nothing, think of the power of that statement that you can go out these doors facing no matter what you're facing knowing you lack nothing in Jesus Christ and that's why the scriptures teach a surrendered life that's why the scriptures teaches repeatedly trust me not the world trust Christ not your circumstance give your life to him and he will perfect you is there anyone here who doesn't want to be perfected we just don't want to pay the price but you can be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, if you don't know how to go about it, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, not, nothing doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So doubting prevents seeing. But understand something. God doesn't expect you to be perfect and not doubt and just go straight forward. He he knows we're messy. He knows it takes time. But trusting him, he brings you along. And that's the beauty of trials. And that's why you and I can count it joy and trials because they're exercises. There are things that come along to point us to Christ, to trust Him, so that He is the source of our blessing, not what we can achieve in this life. So, count it all joy in the midst of struggles? Yes. Now, I told you about George Mueller. George Mueller was an incredible prayer warrior, but it wasn't just easy breezy. He didn't just say, Lord, I need this, and boom, there it was. He agonized sometimes for long periods of time. One of the most popular stories, and if you're familiar with him, you'll know this story, but the treasurer came to him and he said, George, (laughs) we're out of money. And George thought, and he goes, well, we're out of food. And if we have no money, we can't feed these orphans. And he began to agonize and struggle and go before God. And the heart of us just twisting inside, Lord, this is your ministry. We have no food. The children are counting on us. We have no food. And he agonized and agonized and agonized and agonized and the dinner hour came and the children filed in and they sat on their little benches in front of empty bowls. (laughs) And George had the gall to sit down and pray. Lord, thank you for the provision. We're about to receive And with the amen came a knock at the door. And outside the door was a broken down bread wagon on its way to the city. And the man said, it's going to spoil. Can you use a whole trailer full of bread? And that night, every one of those young children went to bed with full bellies. I mean, we read these stories and we think, oh, God, to pray that way to know that I can cry out to God and he's going to meet my needs. He will meet your needs. But it comes sometimes with agony and struggle. And George Mueller was no different. He poured his heart out. But because he had died to himself, because he had surrendered his life on the altar, because he had died to George Mueller and the things of this world, Christ could work through a surrendered heart and those needs. Folks, that is the basis of the gospel we preach. This is the basis of what we're talking about. Now, I can't promise an easy, prosperous life, but only a life that is perfect and complete and lacks nothing. It's your choice. Now, Jesus gives an invitation He gives this invitation, and the principle has been stated, and it's been applied, and now he invites us to follow him in number one, self-denial. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Now, if we lived in Jesus' time, I'm sure many of us, when we read the Gospels and see how he often had to sleep in fields, he had no home, Uh, there was not much food, he was constantly being hounded by his enemies, we'd take him in in a heartbeat. We'd protect him. We'd clothe him. We'd feed him. But if you would have done it then, you can still do it today. The key is that when we are surrendered him, he said to all generations, whoever serves me must follow me. And when you follow Christ, you have a spirit of self-denial. And that's the greatest way to take up his invitation to once and for all give up this life and surrender for him, to step aside and allow him to live through you, his amazing life. Sounds like a lot of work, but in reality, it's a simple surrender. There's no work on our part. It's just a giving ourselves to him so that he can live through us. Number two, service service how do i serve him matthew twenty-five, forty. and the king will answer saying truly i say to you as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers you've done it to me once you and i have surrendered once we have given our lives over to christ and we ask him how we can be used then he will begin to use us to serve other people to meet the needs of people could be the person next to you in the pew could be your neighbor Could be someone at work, could be somebody at Better Way or MRC, wherever you're plugged in. God will use you to shine his glory through. And and let's make sure that while we we are seeing God's blessings here at Grace, and as we seek to go deep and allow the Lord to have all of us, that it never is about us, but about what, what the Lord will do through us about how we can serve him in the community around us. And then number three, our holiness. Jesus lived a perfect life so holy that even his enemies couldn't find fault in him. Can I say to you that we're not perfect, we never will be perfect this side of glory, but when Jesus Christ has all of you, his holiness is seen through you. His holiness is what touches the world, not you or I. And so we become surrendered conduits that the world can see Jesus. And that's what he's after here. Now, I want to give you two major incentives as we close this morning. Verse 26 again says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Number one, he will be with anyone who will follow him. On the one hand, if we follow Christ here on earth, we can be absolutely sure that He is with you. Now, what I mean by that is, when you accept Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You have Him for eternity. But what we're talking about here now is not just having the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit having you. And whatever you do and wherever you go, He is always with you. I mean, that should be a major, major encouragement to you. That the Son of God, His Spirit, He knows we're weak. He knows we're not perfect. He knows we make mistakes. So He says, look, I I got this. I got this. Here's what I'm going to do. When you accept me, I'm going to give you my Spirit. And my Spirit will be free to live through you, to touch the world. If you have called upon Christ and made Him your Savior, you have His Spirit. Now the key is to surrender to it and let Him live through you. Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 2, 11-12. The saying is trustworthy for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. And if we endure, we will also reign with Him. But if we deny Him, he will also deny us. You can't make it any simpler than that. Give the reins to him and he will lead. And wherever you are this morning and whatever you're dealing with, can I just basically say this, let it go. Let it go. And let him live through you. And then number two, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There is coming a day when we're going to leave this world behind. And when we enter heaven, will we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. When you serve him, the Father will honor you. Can there be any more motivation? Will you stand by him Will you live for him? Will you suffer for him if that's what he calls in your life? Because in all these things, the Bible says we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. The battle's won. So let's live in victory. Leave it here at the altar. Walk out these doors in newness of life. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, I promise you on the authority of this book that when you place your faith in Christ, this book tells me that you are sealed until the day of redemption. You can never lose your salvation. And there are a lot of people this morning who are being prayed for by many of you and all I'm telling you to do is to claim the blood of Christ, trust him and he will bring it to pass. Now, as you think of this surrendered life, here we come right to the table of communion. And why do we practice communion? Because it reminds us that he, 2,000 years ago, paid the ultimate price to secure your eternal salvation. The creator died for the created. The God of the universe so loved you and I that he didn't want to just wipe the slate clean after sin and start again. No, he created you. He loves you. And there had to be a way to pay for your sin. And he took it upon himself because he was perfect. And so as we come to this table, we're reminded of the unimaginable love that was shed for you and I and so as the men come to prepare for communion I want to ask you to just take some time of silence and I want you to just be real honest with the Lord and ask him God do you really have all of me is there any area in my life that's hindering your work in me That's making me complete and perfect and lacking nothing. Bring it to mind and deal with it as we prepare for communion. Let's pray. Father, work in our hearts. Lord, your spirit is so strong in us. And we know that in our flesh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We confess this morning, Lord, that you have promised a life of unspeakable joy we get all fouled up in our human thoughts and our human desires and our human wants. Move in us right now, dear God, as we meditate and pray and call upon you, change our lives and direct them where you are.